0: Hi, and uh, welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. The topic today is a topic very dear to my heart, and I am absolutely thrilled to have two people very closely associated with it as my guests. Uh, I'd like to welcome Lorna McCauley and Rebecca Hutton to the podcast. And Lorna, would you like to start by introducing yourself?
1: Thanks, Nick. Uh, yeah, my name is is certainly Lorna McCauley and I um I my day job is a chief executive of the Harris Tweed Authority, based here in Stornoway. Um, Stornoway is the, the the main town in in the island of Lewis. Um, but Harris Tweed, um, as the name suggests, began its uh, its journey in the Isle of Harris, uh, which is interesting not not technically a, a separate island, um, but a a, a Separated from the Isle of Lewis by a, a mountain range, and and is absolutely genuinely the home of Harris Tweed, where where Becca is today. And um, uh, the Harris Tweed Authority is an unusual and um, anomalous um, organisation. It is the technically the legal guardian of the unique uh, industry that is is Harris Tweed industry. Uh, nobody no, nobody owns Harris Tweed. Um, uh, the Harris Tweed Authority hold it in trust for the good people of the Outer Hebrides and it's a real joy and privilege and sometimes a responsibility indeed to to have a role in, in looking after uh, such a precious thing.
0: Because it is an Outer Hebridean thing, it's not a Scottish thing or anything else thing.
1: No, no, it's uh, it, it, uh, we, we, we fiercely protect it as a Outer Hebridean asset. Um, The the industry, uh, the cloth, by law, can only be made in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. And in terms of definition, that is any of the islands of the Outer Hebrides from the uh, Butt of Lewis uh, in in the north to the islands of uh, Barra and Battersea and indeed, technically, St Kilda also in in, in the south. Uh, But in reality, nowadays, um, all Harris Tweed cloth is Manufactured and woven in either Lewis or Harris. And um, we, we, you know, we can we can certainly talk more about that as, as the discussion goes on.
0: Now the legal protection of the Harris Tweed is fairly recent, but Tweed as such has been woven for a very long time on the islands.
1: That's right. Um, there, is, there is certainly evidence of, of uh, cloth manufacture and, and weaving um, dating back, you know, archaeologists are, are, archaeologists are able to find it from, from sort of the, the 16th century. Um, but we take the origins and the roots of the Harris Street industry from about 1846. And that was... Um, Largely credited to the arrival on Harris of the of the Lord, Lord Dunmore and his wife um, Catherine Herbert, and under, the story goes that um, in in sort of the eighteen forties uh, he arrived uh, on the island and, and and sadly didn't didn't live too long after arriving on Harris, and when his uh, widowed wife Catherine, um, the Countess of Dunmore, was settling. Um, his estate and as you can imagine traveling back and forth from London to do so was was not as we do now and jump on a, a one-hour flight and you know be, be in, in the in Central Belt and then another hour flight to London you know I can imagine it was a, a three or four day horse and cart ride and, 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 and more even um she began to market the products the woven products of the islanders of Harris that she had befriended to her wealthy and aristocratic friends and contacts in London. She would take pieces of woven cloth back and forth with her when she was settling her husband's estate and people would buy the cloth and she would return to, to Harris with more orders and um, slowly but surely an industry was born and um, the records show that um, the Countess of Dunmore Funded and encouraged two uh, sisters, the McLeod sisters, um, uh, to fr- from from the village of is it Borthdale? Becca, I think it is. Um, they, they were they were from um, to Strond, yes. Beg your pardon. Thanks. Um, to to um, travel to to Paisley, which was at that time the sort of textiles hub of Scotland. To Learn the skill of, of sort of commercialized weaving and and bring that back home and cascade it to other island weavers and and thus that an industry was born. So so yeah, the roots the roots begin in royalty in about eighteen forty.
0: And interestingly enough, uh, the islands kind of resisted the industrial revolution after a certain point.
1: <laughs> yes, I I think that that I think that's right. And um, I I think uh, you know we we look at we look at how how. You in know the industry. You know it. It's, it never ceases to amaze me that in 1909, when the then Halswede uh, Association board members, I mean, the, such vision and foresight to think to uh, protect what was, you know, a you know a, a cottage industry. You know, was individuals at their own homes making cloth. You know, in what must have been, you know, extremely difficult and poverty, you know, um, after after the you know, potato famines and, and things must have been hugely difficult, but to have that vision to, to to say, no, this is ours and we're going to carry on doing it this particular way and protect it. It's unique and it's special and it's ours. Um, and, you know, my, my job today, you know, we have uh, the internet and uh, Alibaba and Taibo and, and, and all of these threats. These guys didn't have that and they still had the vision and foresight to, to protect in the face of that industrial commercialization and revolution that was happening all around, to say, you know, we're keeping we're keeping what's special about Harris Tweed, you know, as ours. And and I I, I have just enormous respect for, for what happened back in at that time.
0: And and part of this is that it has to be woven in uh, crofters' home, on the islands, and also by manual power. That's right. Um, Which is why Becca, my other guest today, has the thighs of a professional cyclist. Is that right, Becca?
2: <laughs> I don't think they're quite as toned, but uh, they are definitely as good <laughs> move over Chris Hoy.
0: But, but why is that that it was never allowed to be industrialised? Is that just to keep the sort of entry level for someone to get involved in weaving fairly low?
2: Uh, I mean Lorna probably knows better than I do, but I would imagine it was purely because they wanted to keep it at the Weaver's own homes um and when all of this started there wasn't electricity I mean in some parts of the islands electricity didn't come to the 50s That's right. um so there was there was no option you couldn't have motorized looms although there were motorized looms being used in you know yorkshire and, and places like that there was no way of plugging them in. So in order to make it work, you'd have to set up a system where you cycle to generate the power and in order to generate your looms, so you may as well just tidal away at the looms.
1: Rebecca's absolutely right. That that that's that's as basic an answer as it was that uh, you know the, the key thing about Harris Tweed was that it brought employment to the most rural parts of Lewis and Harris. Um commerce and trade was beginning to be centred in Stornoway. And what you know that, that that would have flown in the face of everything Hadis Tweed stood for was to was to uh, you know bring people into to commercial hubs in the town um, to to weave Hadis Tweed. what we what they wanted to achieve was keep economic activities in these fragile rural villages which did not have at that time um, electricity and um, the, the other really interesting uh, fact was that. Uh, on returning from the wars you know there were an awful lot of island men who sadly had lost limbs and my understanding is that part of the design process around the treadle loom was was um the consideration that there needed to be um work for for returning veterans and uh, and hence you know the foot pedal pedal loom, uh, a loom was was brought in as as, as a as a contribution to to that
0: so really the harris tweed weavers are among the original work from home people because there has never been a centralized factory or it has always been done in the home
1: yeah i'll allow becca to to, to, to take that one but you know we we've dealt with a you know obviously a number of of, dealing with press as as part of of what we do at the authority here and um, over the last uh, year whilst we've been living in these unprecedented times you know we've been saying that gosh Hadasside Weavers have been the masters in working from home and isolation and um, all of these things that we are grasping to get used to Becca and others have been doing for years and doing well.
2: Absolutely, what lockdown! I mean, it was one good thing when there was that big push, actually, for working from home. It was like, oh, well, as long as I don't have to move everything from the loom shed into the house, I should be okay. <laughs> but uh, it, it is, and I think the the fact that there's never been any sort of, of mass centralization of Harris-Tweed has meant that nobody's ever thought about doing it again, if that makes sense. You know, it's not like it was done at some point and then they thought, no, what we should do is separate this back out and that, which I find really interesting because... It is unusual in this year. Need for somebody not to be pushing to change things and to turn it into that, but but nobody bothers because it works the way it works and always has done.
1: I mean, there have been attempts in the past to to take the industry off the island. There have been attempts to to set up sort of commercialised uh, and the Harris Food Association, which was the organisation predating the Harris Food Authority, who I work for, um, you know, showed its teeth. And fought and vigorously to say no. We're, we're not having that. Uh, you know, people may say it's old fashioned. People may say it's you know stuck in the dark ages, or, a, a, or we're not being a, dynamic and going with going with trends. But the, you know, such was the the will to retain the values, the original values of Tweed that. Um, the, the, the work from the weaver working from his or her home um is, is just non-negotiable and I have to say that that said though you know we do have we recognize that not everybody is blessed enough to have a, a garden or a outbuilding um, we have to acknowledge that we live in a world where um you, p- people live with in social housing and, and other arrangements and and you know we do have mechanisms to accommodate that but within that weaver's own uh, community or or extended kind of um, locale but but not into centralized commercial hubs in, 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 in towns.
0: It is important though to protect what makes Harris Tweed unique and rare. Uh, there aren't I can't think of any other fabrics that have the legal protection, thus making them so special as the Harris Tweed
1: no no I, I you know i I don't think there are other um you know certainly not textile products that have have this um this really unusual and and unprotected uh, status i mean clearly there are uh, food products that are, analogous um, and with with what, what with what we are trying to do and champagne being being the the kind of obvious one and um, and other geographically protected uh, foodstuffs um, and certainly you know we prior to to Brexit there we were uh, the hardest food industry was being held up I suppose as the poster boy or girl um, of the, the the a real a real um, a real mo- movement towards introducing non Food products, non-food and drink products, to the geographic indication movement, and, and you know, we absolutely meet all all the, the criteria of of that uh, level of protection. Which, interestingly, the public understand much more than ever. Our our kind of trademark and and our Act of Parliament, the public understand GI. They understand that a Elton Mowbray pork pie is protected, and um, that our both smokies are protected, that champagne is protected, that Parmahan is protected. And and they are willing to pay a premium price to buy these food and drink products. Um, and so we really wanted um Harris Tweed to fall under that level of of um consumer aware um, protection to add that to our, our that add that particular string to our bow. But after Brexit um, um sadly the, the UK has not adopted non-agri GIs, and, and we've lost some 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 groundwork there. But um, might come later. But uh, you know, I'm I'm I I think it's just I think it's so tremendously important to that we have we in the face of, of you know commercialisation and and the fast fast fashion and technology and all the things um, that have happened over the last 140 years that we have kept these values through to, to you know our ancestors who, who devised and set up this thing and and that's not to say you know we run the industry in a thoroughly 21st century way it's just that the cloth is woven in this way that looks after the weavers looks after communities um and 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 then we're true to to that
0: value it strikes me though that harris tweed is kind of less about the business it's not about I mean, clearly it has to survive. It has to make a profit and all that. But it's also so much more. It's more like a social experiment. Uh, When I visited the islands, uh, I was struck by um, how similar they were to where I grew up in the north of Norway. Not necessarily the towering mountains, but how few people live there and probably how few jobs there are. So I can only imagine the social importance of being able to have a loom in the shed and make a living pretty much wherever you live on the islands.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um and and I think one of the most important things about weaving, um, I had a street weaving anyway, in the fact that it's at home, is that it always fitted into the the island lifestyle, the crafting lifestyle if you like. So I mean going way back in the day, you would do it in amongst everything else you were doing, whether that was looking after the animals or fishing or whatever else you might be doing you could then weave um in the weekend or in the evenings or you know whenever and even now in order to survive in the islands unless you have you know a a good job with the local authority with the the nhs somebody like that where you can get good full-time work chances are you're going to have at least two jobs (laughs) and weaving again fits in it still fits in today with that um and you don't need to worry too much about you know working late at night and the noise of it or you know big motors running or anything like that because it is it's a nice it's a nice noise the <laughs> clickety clack. Um, but like you said, most people are actually isolated enough that you don't have you know a hundred other people living on top of you, um, where you're going to be disturbing them and things like this. So yeah, it is definitely, but I think it's just. I don't know. Maybe it's different because I've grown up with it. It's it's as part of the islands as the hills and the beaches and the sea. Yeah. You know the noise of it, the say the, the the sheds, the fabric itself, everything. The whole industry is just it's just part of island life for us. Yeah.
0: So how, how did you get into
2: weaving, Becca? Uh, I look after my brother who's got some disabilities and that and we'd had to go away to the mainland for a few years for things for him and I was home on holiday um, and we were looking at moving back because they'd kind of done as as much as they could for him and I was speaking to a friend of mine who just so happened to be doing the weaving course that had been set up on the double width looms to weave for the mills and I was like oh you know that would be really interesting but I've got no interest in double width weaving because again just for me the single width weaving is what I knew as a Tweed weaving. That's what we had in the village and everything. And I was like, you know, if only one day there would be a course like that, that would be good. And that was that. And then less than a year later, I heard they were doing a course for single width. <laughs> so I got in touch and I said, you know, I'm coming back. If you ever do another one, let me know, please. And they did. And I did it. And here I am now.
0: And the difference between or the significance of the single width and the double width is it purely uh, purist versus versus modern or? <laughs>
2: <That's> an interesting <laughs> question. Um, <laughs> the, they're, they're just different. I mean, the, the double width obviously produces a double width cloth. Um, single width produces approximately 75 centimeters wide when finished. Double width approximately 150. And, um, there are variations in the looms and what can actually be woven on them. There's some patterns that um, we can weave on a hatter sleeve that you can't weave on uh, the double width looms and vice versa. There's things they can do that we can't do. Um, But production wise, you can produce more per hour on a double width loom um, linear length than you can on a single width. Uh, So a lot of the mills will use double width weavers because they can produce a cloth faster. It's still hand woven or foot woven it's like bicycle pedals as opposed to treadles, which we have in the single width. But um, yeah, it, there's always going to be those who prefer the single width because of the history of it. Um, you know, they are, that's the looms that came up here in the 20s. Like Lorna was saying earlier, for, for the, especially returning servicemen, the, um, the old wooden looms that had been used before then, you had to have two working arms. And two working legs because you had to move for every single shot going back and forth. You you had to do something. The hattersley came in and it had automatic arms, if you like, to move the shuttle back and forth. So you didn't need to use that. And it had two treadles instead of one. It's getting very technical, right? instead of one for every board. So if you had and I, I knew a weaver who had a wooden foot, um and he just he had a block to adjust for it and he could kind of strap his foot on and away he'd go and weave, no problem. Mm. Um But they are, they're the the loom people will think of when they think of Hattisley. And I think because predominantly, and Lauren will correct me if I'm wrong on this, I think, I don't know if there are any independent weavers weaving on double width looms. At the moment, I think they're all on single width. So it means as well that for anybody who comes to visit, chances are they're visiting an independent weaver and they'll still see the Hattersley looms. So that's still the loom associated with the industry. So, um, from my point of view, obviously the better loom. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> do, do they both sound the same? No, no, no. They sound very different. Um, the the Hattersley looms are noisier, um, and you have to you have to do a lot more with it. You're having to watch things. It's not as as up to date as the the double looms, which have a, an alarm to tell you if I, if the yarn is broken, for example. We have to just watch it and see. Um, the Hatters looms also are a shuttle loom, so a boat shuttle that you fit a, like a mini bobbin inside. Um, and that's what flies back and forth. The double width looms are rapier looms. And it's like a wee hook that goes from one side to the other that picks up just a single strand of yarn, takes it over, cuts it. Um, so even from a design point of view, if you're weaving on the Hattersley, you've got to do everything in twos because whatever goes down has to come back up. Can't just hang around down there doing nothing. Um, the double width looms—they don't. It's a single end that's going down every time. So, um, different design capabilities, different noises. They're quieter. Um, you don't need to watch it so much. Uh yeah. Absolutely, still better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> being, being more modern, though, the 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 double widths are probably easier for spare parts and so forth.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um. It's they're being, still being manufactured today, so it is a relatively straightforward um, experience to get apart for a double slum. it's you know, you need to know people uh, and hope that they'll let you into their sheds and you can rake around the back and see what you can find. <laughs> Especially the Hatchley Mark IIs, which came up to the islands in the 70s. Um, and there were very few of them made compared to the Mark I, so... Consequently, there's very few parts that are kicking around. There's a lot of parts interchangeable, but it'll never be a part you need. Um, You can get some manufactured today; they're expensive, and usually whoever is manufacturing it wants minimum orders because um, they don't want to just make one part for one loom. So it is a bit more awkward. But having said that, the hatchley looms are so robust, so well made. It's cast iron, steel and wood. And if you look after them, you know, they're not breaking down every week. They will just keep going. Um, so they were built to last, you know, and there's people still weaving on the original 1920 looms that came up. So they did something right.
0: They are 100 years old now, which is remarkable, yeah. really. So speaking of cost, uh, obviously you're an independent weaver in your own shed. Uh, you, you buy your own loom, I take it. What, what sort of investments are we talking
2: well, I, again, because I did this course, um, I was able to rent the loom. Um, it was part of the course they were doing to get younger people into weaving. Um, after they'd done the double course, they realised that, obviously, there was a dearth of, of young, haplessly weavers in the islands, and that the skills of those weavers would be lost unless they took younger people in. And at the time, I was classed as a younger person, so um, <laughs> I did the course. But uh, But as part of that, the looms were actually sourced for us. Um, and we were able to rent them and now we've been able to to buy them but, um, but it was a great start because otherwise you could be for some looms you can get for a bottle of whiskey other looms you're going to be paying a phenomenal amount of money it just all depends who's selling so it could be a huge investment for something that maybe wouldn't work out for you so we were quite lucky we got the opportunity to start and and pay a small rental and then we've had the opportunity to buy if we carried on with the, the weaving.
1: Mm. Nick, just just to put that in in, in context, you know, when when Rebecca and I were growing up um, on the islands, the harvest food industry was was something I would imagine our parents wouldn't necessarily have encouraged us into. It was an industry that was um, fraught with highs and lows, uh, peaks and troughs, Um, it was an industry that didn't have you know a mechanism of of pay and reward or progression or you know any of the things that you would want you know a young person to to go into in their career and 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 i don't think that's any different from the textile industry more widely in in history it was it was a it wasn't a a particularly career it wasn't particularly a career that you would you would want you know your, your your child to go into and so in two thousand and nine, when I came to the Harlech Street Authority, you know, we were about to embark on a period where we were inviting, you know, very very significant um, investment into this industry to save it. Frankly, it, it was on the edge. But then we looked at the workforce, and whilst they were incredibly skilled, a group of largely men um, working in mills and uh, as weavers the average age was 66 and you know and we we had to you know think on our feet to say how in the world do we turn the tide and um, attract young people or younger people into this industry which which had actually you know quite a tarnished reputation uh, locally and um fast fast forward uh, uh 11 12 years now and um, you know there, there's so many things we can be proud of but you know one of them is that you know, we have databases and, and spreadsheets of, of young, talented island people who want to work in the hard street industry because they see whether it's as weavers or as blue collar mill workers or, or or office workers working on the design side, working the legal side, working on the marketing side, they see, forgive my language, a sexy sector on their own doorstep um that they want to be part of. And I, I you know I that is that is just an tremendous shift from what I grew up with. Um you know where you know I would have been actively discouraged from from entering uh, this industry for all its woes at the time, and 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 look, it's not perfect. It's it's still got, got many got many issues and, and anomalies with it. But um, you know, I I feel enormously proud that there are that are um, young people working in the industry. You go around the mills today, and you take journalists and and media crews round all the time, and they are staggered to see you know. Bright, enthusiastic young islanders, um, so enthused about working in this ancient industry, and that's that's a really it's uh, a real success story for us.
0: Mm. You were speaking of ups and downs, and I think around the millennium things were looking pretty bleak, weren't they? Yes. Around uh, two thousand and three, two thousand and four. We have, we have to drag it up.
1: Yes, that's yes, yes, yes. Don't on to drag Just for a, a bit of context, um, is the harvest feed industry production peaked in 1966 at 7.6 million yards in those days of cloth leaving these island shores. Um, before my time, before I think all of our times, um, that that would have been, yeah. Um, you know, people talk of of every home, every village, and every home having a connection to the Harris Street industry at that time. And um, the bus timetables were entirely uh, prepared and planned around mill shifts. It was it was the mainstay of the island economy, su- supporting fishing and crofting, and and many of these people who were working in the industry, as Rebecca said a moment ago, would have had many occupations. You know, they'd have been fishermen, they have been crofters, and they'd have been. Uh, weavers or harris wood workers. Um, and then there have been peaks and troughs throughout uh, the 70s and 80s. The American market was hugely buoyant in the mid-80s. We, were, we, we, hit, a, we hit about the 5 million meter mark in the, the mid-80s. Um, there are a, a, a number of reasons and and, um, and uh, folk will have different views on why these peaks and troughs, troughs have happened throughout history. Um, some of them are, are purely fashion. Some of them are, are business and, and commerce and trade and duty and taxes, were we're, 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 we're a challenge for us. Um, but what I would say, and then and then just to, to put that uh, seven point six million meter or yard uh, figure in context, in two thousand and nine, our industry produced just four hundred and fifty thousand meters of cloth. And that was a point of, of real, you know, a discussion around the, the, the future viability of, of the Street industry. Did, did it have a future? Was it still relevant? And, and we on the island strongly believed it was. And 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 I think we've, we've, we've shown that was the right decision. But we, we have also in that time acknowledged that we will never again be a 7 million metre industry, nor indeed a 5 million metre industry. And I don't think we want to be that either. We are what we are. We are um, a finite resource. There are only, uh, you, you know, 100 and... Well, just 9 on 200 weavers. There are about 180 double width weavers and and about 20 active single width weavers like Becca. Um, when they've done all they can do, that's it. There's no turning on the switch. There's no There's no putting on a second shift they can make what they can make and that in itself creates you know a, a luxury finite thing that's special and um, we also we we also recognize that we live in a world of um, public transport we live in a world of um, central heating men of a day present company like accepted don't necessarily wear their wool jacket of a day, you know, we live in a world of performance fabrics and and technical textiles, and and wool in in, in garments has as perhaps is less less you know in demand. Men do not put on their wool jacket like they maybe did in sixties at that seven point six million uh, yard uh, milestone of our industry. But what what we really are happy about is that if we are a two million meter industry, we are that every year. We're able to be consistent, no highs, no lows, no payoffs, that people have careers that they can rely on, they can get mortgages like you and I can. And, you know, it's it's that we're a sustainable uh, industry going forward rather than this, this peaks and troughs thing that, that in history. And and I, I think that's a really um, wise uh, conclusion the industry came to, to not aspire to necessarily be bigger, but just to be better.
2: I agree. Thanks, speaker. <laughs> it's true, but you still get the peaks and troughs. Um, they very small now, but they are more fashion-led. But instead of losing the kind of meterage being woven, you lose the styles. Um, and a different style comes in. So, I mean, it's very broadly speaking, but say the European market kind of dips a wee bit because they're going for something else. There's another market out there now. That's the thing. It's spread out far more. You're not as reliant on one market, and if that dips, you've had it. So, it is. And I mean, for me, since I started, and I have been weaving now, when did I start? 2012. So nine years. Um, and in that time, it's been steady. And I can't ask for any more than that. And and like Lorna said, there is a limit as to what my little legs can produce. Um, and I don't want to, you know, I mean, inevitably, this year has, has caused some difficulties. And I do have a bit of a backlog, you know, and people waiting for things. But Oh, I can't imagine anything worse than sitting in a normal year at my loom and thinking oh there's another 30 40 50 100 tweeds I've got to do before I can do one for me you know and um, and I and I think it's it's right it's it's better to give more steady employment um to to people than than you know getting Right, bringing another 300 weavers for six months and then, all oh, right, well, everybody needs to be laid off again. You know, it's just it's just not sustainable, especially the way our islands are now. We don't have the people in the islands anymore. Um, so, yeah, far better, I think, for, for the way it is just now.
0: It does make me wonder how many weavers there were when they managed seven and a half million yards.
1: Yeah, a lot, and uh, you know, I, we we fortunately have quite nice archives which have have now been gifted by the authority to the, our, our local uh, archival and museum, and um, you know that we can find one uh, ha- beautifully handwritten um, document with seventeen hundred names of 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 weavers um, we, we don't have a feel necessarily how how many of these were you know producing what level of production there was but you know that that would be more reflective of of the sort of output um, that that would generate seven odd million meters but um you know we've learned so much about um rebecca talks about the training courses that were were uh, delivered in in to, to kind of encourage more people into the industry and you know we learned that um that maybe the classroom approach to teaching weaving wasn't wasn't the right one you know we initially launched in and got tutors and colleges involved and svqs and you know you would start the course in week one at 9am and aim to finish it at uh, week 26 and and friday at five and and we realized that was rubbish that's just not how it doesn't that's not how it works and you know we realized quickly that the the one-to-one mentoring, you know, mentoring introducing a new entrant weaver with an experienced uh, weaver in his or her broad geography was a much, much better and, and more sustainable way of anybody ever learning to be a handspied weaver. Stand and watch, sit on my, you know, my loom and do it with me. I'll, I'll sit over you, um, and and for some that took three months, for others it took three years, um, but it was a a, a greatly um, more effective method of, of teaching new weavers how to weave but more so that even when the training period was over if the mill delivered a pattern you've never done before to your weaving shed and you went help you know I don't know how to, to, to do this one you just phoned your mentor and he came and stood over you and why you tied it in and why you got started and, and I, I know of mentoring relationships that are 10 and 12 years old now you know the payments have long since stopped but that friendship and that camaraderie and and i have to say you know for for folk who work alone that 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 relationship was was hugely important and it was by accident we discovered it rather than any any clever plan
0: right because you were trying to do it in a modern way but really it was the old way that worked correct Yeah. and speaking of mentors that allows me an opportunity to circle back a bit to the story i wanted to <laughs> yeah
2: yeah <Donald> john McKay. <laughs> i mean i well just kind of touching briefly what Lorna said there i actually did the, the svq course i have my level one and level two in textile manufacturing um but i so i did the course did a lot passed everything started on my own um i was doing my first tweet for me not as part of the course when donald john from Luskintyte came in and his brother lives next door to me and I've known him obviously forever. Um, so he came in to see how I was getting on and New Year's Day, glittering away about everything and he said, I'll send you down a, a wee tweed to do you. All right, thank you very much. That's great. Off he went and um, he appeared a few weeks later with, <laughs> um, well, I mean, if that's what he called a wee tweed, I'd have hated to see a, a big tweed. So we still use Weaver's Yards when it comes to warping and things and a weaver's yard is eight foot as opposed to a normal yard of three foot so the tweed he took down the warp he took down was 43 weaver's yards so it's over 100 meters um and i i'd never seen a beam that big so he dropped it off there you go becca any problems let me know and off he went <laughs> i thought my first problem is i don't know how i'm going to lift this <laughs> so anyway, lift it I did, got it into the loom. The most stressful tweed I have ever woven in my entire <laughs> life. Um, you know, and we've been taught in the course to check this and check that and check that Well, I was checking honestly every inch or so I was checking that cloth to make sure it was perfect. And I was weaving it, I could barely climb stairs by the end of every night because my legs were so sore from weaving all day. Um I had to actually take out part of my shed behind my, my loom seat. I had to take out part of the wall in order to fit because this tweed was so big. I mean, it was, you know, a good two foot across when it was coming off the loom. Um, and then as you take it off the loom, you you take it off in a concertina fashion, so but like an accordion, so that as it runs through the mill, it can come off easily. Um, and you do that on top of the loom. And I'm quite short, and I was struggling at the end to actually fit it on and then you tie it up, lift it round. And I still don't know to this day how I managed to lift it, uh, but I did. And as I was going around the side of my loom, the belt loop on my jeans got stuck on a part. (laughs) It's about two in the morning. I'm (laughs) getting crushed under the weight of this, you know, a hundred odd metre tweed that's greasy. So it hasn't been finished. So it's heavier and I'm stuck. <laughs> there's no rain. I can show it helps all I wanted. And I mean I'm just pleased that you know there's no webcam in my head because, I mean, I was shimmying and everything, trying to get off this this lever that I was stuck on, which eventually I did. And at this point I'm almost on my knees carrying this this tweed over to the bench. So I put it in. Job done. Phone Donald John. Well no, I text him actually to say that's it ready. So he comes <laughs> the next day to pick it up. You know, thank you very much. Throws it onto his shoulder, one-handed, and goes over it, climbs a fence with it um, because he was part of his brother. So just hopped over the fence with this tweed on his shoulder. And I thought, wow, well, that's something now. That's a weaver for you. Maybe one day. And it's funny. I mean, now I, I lift up tweeds without thinking about it. But I haven't tried climbing any fences. But he, um, he put that tweed in. He didn't check it, which I thought was just crazy. Um, but he said, no, 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 I, I trust you. And I thought, oh, you're crazy what do I know about weaving? But uh, he put it in, it passed all the, the checks, um, got stamped. Uh, he'd taken in my own tweed for me as well. And so he phoned me to tell me that, that was back. And uh, I said, I don't care about mine. What about your one? You know, did he get the stamp? And oh, yes, no problem. And, uh, and then he asked if I wanted another tweed. And I thought, well, it's obviously good enough for him. So it's good enough for anybody else. Um, and that's how I started. So he then became my mentor. And he, I mean, he's forgotten more about weaving than I'll ever learn. Um, and I think the most important thing about that man is that he's not precious with his knowledge at all. He wants to pass it on. He wants younger people to be weaving. He wants to see the industry survive. So he, you know, gives advice on actual weaving, on the business side of things, um, on the industry as a whole, on the looms and um, parts. He's just Yeah, um, I had uh, an incident where the shed where I was going to be doing my warping um, was damaged recently. And so immediately he phoned, he was like, use mine, it's there, anytime you want. Um, And so that's what I've been doing, I've been over there warping. His was a slightly different setup to mine. So first he was down, showing me everything. You know, and, and to have that, like Lauren said earlier, to have somebody who knows all of these things who can head you off at the pass if you're starting to go down the wrong road or making a mistake or doing anything like that or just aren't sure, you know, what's going on or how things work. I mean, the harvest tweed industry is a very odd industry, as Lorna says, nobody owns it. Um, you know, you've got mills who can't produce tweed themselves, uh, you've got weavers who don't produce the yarn anymore, and we can't the tweed. You know, you everybody needs everybody else, and when you're starting out, although obviously coming from here I knew quite a bit about the industry, those intricacies to have somebody who's been there done it and to be able to guide you through it and to explain how things work and you know what you need to do and you know, even just little things like like being prepared to change the tweed you're planning on weaving, depending on on whether you can get the yarn. You know, don't be set on I'm only weaving this tweed just now. You know, be ready with well if I can't get the yarn for that one, I'll do this one. If I can't do that one, I'll do this one little things like that, you know, so I'm very lucky, I haven't woven for him for a wee while, because um, I would do tweets for him, maybe a wee one for myself, and, and as my own business has built up, I've cut back with a wee one for him, but still, I text him, um, still I ask the questions, still I get answers, still I'm giving advice, um, and as Lorna said, that, that kind of mentor relationship is is invaluable, absolutely invaluable and what i what i've learned from him i'm passing on to other people um so weavers who've come after me and things i've learned to be like oh hey check this out you know or watch in case this happens or, or look for that or, you know and it is because we do work in our own and because especially the independent um side of it, it you know there's not that many of us we're quite small and we need each other um If nothing else, because only another weaver will understand the problems you're having. (laughs) If you've ever tried explaining to a non-weaver about things going wrong in the loom, it's amazing how quickly the eyes glaze over. (laughs) You know, and they're they're certainly trying to be supportive, but no idea. So, yeah, it's really, really important. And we have, we've got a wee kind of collective in Harris, uh, which is good. So we do all, all help each other. But yeah, Donald John, a legend in his own lifetime.
0: Indeed, and he must have been weaving himself for close to 50 years now?
2: Just over 50 years. Um I was quite... In 1970, he... Just the other day, actually, I was asking him, and he gave me the date, I think it was August. I'm sure he said it was after the, the kind of August break Um he started weaving in 1970. And I was so disappointed, because if I'd known, I'd have made a big deal about it in 2020. So we'll just have to do something for his 51st anniversary. Mm-hmm. And mm. he... I think... Because he'd been weaving for the mills and then as things were like that, you know, as Lorna was saying, everything was up and down, he decided he would kind of branch out and, and maybe just try weaving for himself and that way selling his own cloth and things. And aside from a couple of years where he was working at other things, you know, he has been working solid in the industry all that time. Um, But I think he's been doing it 20, maybe 30 years, 20 anyway. What are we now, 21, 2001? Oh, yes, because that was the Nike. Order so yeah over twenty years he's been weaving independently and at a time when there weren't independents as such so he's he's had to learn a lot of things the hard way thankfully for us
0: and there you touched upon it again <laughs>
2: <laughs> the Nike story well there's no way we're going to get out of this so
0: it has to be mentioned it
2: has to be mentioned Um Nike the the footwear company had got in touch with Donald John and they. Uh, wanted some samples, just tweed samples. So he wove some things and sent them off to them and they liked what they saw. And I mean, this is obviously cutting a very long story short, but uh, and nobody can tell it quite like the man himself. But they came back and said they would like to order and they would like to order a thousand meters. So DJ was like, right, fair enough, working out how much he could weave a day, which is around about 25 yards, 25 meters or so. And okay, well, yes, he could do that. That would be fine. And they needed it by a certain time and no problem. And then later on, his wife got another phone call and came out to tell him that they'd made a mistake. And it wasn't a 1,000 metres that they were wanting to order, but 10,000. At which point, (laughs) TJ was just a little bit dumbfounded um, and wasn't sure what to do. uh, But took it on in the hope that he'd be able to figure something out and he did. He went to one of the mills in Lewis um, and spoke to spoke to them about producing it. Obviously, it was to his design, um, the colour she was wanting. And, I mean, again, I, mean, I am cutting a very long story short, but they agreed to it. And they produced all the yarn that was needed for this. They sent it out to the weavers that had been working for them, all on single width looms, none of it on double. Um, they washed and finished um, the tweeds and everything like that, um, And it just, they were working 24 hours a day. They had night shifts running and everything like that just to get this order done in time. And it has, and it had boosted things, but it takes time for those things to come through for people to then see what, for example, Nike were using, what were they using it for, what was this fabric? Could we use it? And it has helped. i mean, Lorna know far more than I do. You know, and it takes time. It wasn't a quick fix. It wasn't an instant, oh, Nike put in an order for that. Hallelujah, the industry saved, you know. It wasn't like that at all. It's taken time. But it has, and there's still people now who will come back looking for the Nike fabric, the Nike tweed, you know, that pattern, that design, or that weaver, you know, that, that came up with it.
0: I think part of the deal with Nike was that they had to put the Harris Tweed logo on the outside of the shoe.
1: I, I'm not aware of, of that condition um of, of the arrangement at the time, but it was it was certainly pivotal and certainly one of the first whereby tweed cloth was used by a, a street brand if we could call it that um and and certainly one of the very earliest um accessories that became you know that had profile and 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 you know that's why what don john did in taking on that order that was Greatly more than he would ever manage on his own. Uh, and the mill helping him, Schauber's Mill at the time, um, uh, helping him to, to fulfil it. You know, it, it really, and, and, and Becca's dead right, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that ordered at that time, but it started something. It, it allowed other brands to see that this hand-woven, um, you know, 100% wool cloth had application in other ways rather than dad's jacket. You know, Sunday best jacket, and that you know that was why our industry needed to evolve, and it was such a such an important, um, you know, Nike of all of all brands, you know, something that had worldwide, you know, reach and appeal, and you know, um, woven out of, you know, woven out of guys and girls' sheds and their Hebrides of Lewis, you know, and and the story. Of it, you know, it it was just an tremendous, um, you know, boost, and we're still dining out in it all these years later, and we still, we still regale the story, and you know, when we have new and different sports brands um, coming to us, they, they love, they love to, to, to know the origins of the the Nike story, and, and you know, Don John, um, it it was a really important moment for our industry.
0: I'm, I'm very pleased that he did agree to do it because I can't imagine how badly it would be. If he'd said, oh no, can't do that, sorry. (laughs) And that would have been the story told. Well,
2: knowing him with his charm, he'd have found a way around it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, 10 years to get the cloth. (laughs) Mm,
0: Some years after that, again, Yorkshireman, Haggis. Brian Haggis. That sort of caused problems again for Harris Tweed, didn't it? So there are so many twists to the tale. But what, what happened with the Haggis story?
2: I think before Lorna comes in, with the, the she was obviously at the time would know far more about what actually happened. But what I think is interesting, and this is before I was weaving, but the word on the on the croft at that time was really, really interesting, I find. Um, and again, I'd been through it where the industry was, oh, it's dying and there's a few people limping on and you know there's people like Don John, they're fine because he's just doing it himself, but there's no future in it and all the rest of it. And then this man came in. And, oh, he was going to save everything and everything was fine. And two minutes later, oh, he's not. And it was the first time where I heard not just people involved in the industry talking about Harris Tweed and being outraged. Absolutely gobsmacked that somebody was coming in, was cutting down patterns and all the rest of it. And it just seemed to galvanise people into wanting to do something. Nobody knew what. Nobody had a clue what they were going to do. But there was a feeling, certainly down here at the time, of just, we we need to do something. Harris Tweed is ours. Um, It belongs to the weavers here. It belongs to the mills. It belongs to the islands. It's ours. We have to do something. Um, Which I, even to this day, I find really, really interesting, because a lot of those people who were speaking about it at the time and who were outraged, you don't hear from me. They're quite happy with the way the industry is again. But it just shows that island ownership, if you like the Harris Street dynasty, even if you're not actively involved in it. Um, which I was just finding this but Lorna I'll tell you all the proper story.
1: <laughs> Thanks Beck. I completely uh, agree that it was a really um, powerful moment in us as an island realising that what we have has to be saved. So the business Brian Haggis bought had been on the market for many years. and um, the, the gentleman who at that time owned probably 98 percent of the harvest Street industry had been trying to retire for 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 quite some considerable time and buyers had come and gone or potential buyers had come and gone but but had never quite you know signed the deal um Brian Haggis um has is a, a very established incredible textile force in in the north of England and um, he he was you know well known, well established—you um, know—certainly had had the reputation and funds, and 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 you know it was not in itself a, an unexpected buyer of of what was um, Kenneth Mackenzie Limited and the Kenneth McLeod brand at the, at the time. But Brian Haggis uh, is an indomitable force. He 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 had a very a very um, strong view of of what was wrong with the harris street industry in his his view and how he was going to fix it and and one of you know to, to summarize a much more you know it's a much bigger story than, than we can ever have time today but to summarize brian's strategy was to cut the literally thousands of patterns and colors that the mill he had taken over had been making to four and and you know i've told that story in the past and and, and I've, they've come back and we said four They've cut it to 4,000 and I was saying no no just four uh, and, 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 uh, and Brian's strategy was just to make four patterns of, of cloth and to turn it into one style of gent sports jacket not to sell the cloth as, as as cloth to third-party customers to only make cloth to service his own jacket making company to make one style of jacket in four, in four patterns and, and that was his strategy and, and, and that's what he ran with um, believing that, that that was that was you know what would work for, for his his business model you know a, a huge quantity of jackets were made and and i'm not saying anything brian today would not disagree with it didn't work but you know there were casualties I many from from that strategy you know people lost their jobs um, our, our industry was 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 you know was really fragile more fragile than, than it had ever been but what it did is exactly as Becca said. It galvanised um, those, you know, lay people in the community, but also you know people with business know-how, the contacts, with money, and said we cannot allow this act of, of vandalism to destroy what is what is ours and what is is, is so so va- so valued valued by us. And, and ironically, you know, it was the acts of it was the act of Brian Haggis that saved this industry. It created. Um, this urge in us to save something that we love so dearly it created Street Hebrides, which is by quite some considerable margin the, the largest of the three mills. Uh, now it is what it was the act of, of Brian Haggis that that made um, Brian Wilson, who's the chairman of, of um, Street Hebrides, go and seek investment and go and 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 save. You know that was his, that was a single vision to 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 recreate jobs to keep the the archive of patterns and colors and and actually, you know we're thirteen, fourteen years on from from that time. and Brian Haggis last year gifted his business on his retirement, he gifted his business to his manager, a Lewisman, a local man, and his concluding you know goodbye said, Street belongs in the hands of islanders, not Yorkshire men. Or Englishman, he, he recognised that it belongs with island people. And and actually Kim Mackenzie's is now a really important part of our island infrastructure. They are a busy, buoyant mill with many colours and patterns on their on their books, employs lots of people, employs lots of weavers. And so in a kind of Shakespearean tragedy or villain, you know, he, he actually um was a really key person in 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 turning our industry round and, and being what it what it is today and uh, and I, I think you know he acknowledges some of the McState, in his view they were they were you know they were that was his strategy but he, he changed them when they weren't working and and in in the most you know phenomenal gesture of kindness he gifted his business to his manager because he knew he knew that was the right thing to do and Harris tweed in Brian Haggis's view belongs in the hands of islanders.
0: He really came good at the end. He did. <laughs> So, uh, I wanted to ask you, Becca, you probably are the one who knows most about it. But over the years, has the actual tweed itself changed or is the tweed today much like it was, say, 100 years ago?
2: No. Um, one of the main differences is that at least if you get damp and then hot, you won't smell of urine anymore. So that's a good thing. <laughs> Um, back in the day, when um, like when my grandmother and that was weaving, um, they, they used to obviously be finishing the cloth themselves, and so they would have to soak it um, in steel urine to, as a mordant for the dyes, to make the dyes stick, basically, in the cloth. So that's one good thing um, about things moving forward and using the mills for finishing now, that there's none of that going on.
0: But would that have been the authentic urine from the weaver? So it was a very personal touch. Uh,
2: from the whole family. Um, because oh. <laughs> back then, um, and I, I remember the, the tin bath, which still stayed outside my, um, well, my granny's whole family's home door. Uh, the tin bath just remained. Uh, they used to, like anybody anybody who, who went to the toilet, and, you know, it would go into the tin bath and would be left there to come still. Even visitors. It was just a done thing. You needed to keep the urine, so that's just what you did. There is an unfortunate story about a man who went to visit uh, my my aunt, my great aunt, there at the house one night, and he had had a couple of small libations, shall we say? He he'd had a few drams and was a little unsteady on his feet, and unfortunately fell into the bath, <laughs> the back door. <laughs> And heard the commotion came out and there he was lying in this bath, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, So that's, that has moved on. In fact, that's actually, I'm totally changing the sort of saying here, but something about the number of weavers there would have been back in the day. I don't know if many people realise, but it was very much a family affair. Um, and it's funny if you ever look back, if you do family history and you look back on census censuses, Um, from that time and there might only be one person listed as for example a woolen weaveress, and somebody else might be on that same thing as a spinner and somebody else might be there as the crofter and somebody whatever else Um, which is interesting as it is just a snapshot of that time when the assessor came to the house and somebody might be sitting spinning so they were a spinner and somebody else might actually physically be weaving so they were the weaver but everybody took their turn um, whoever was free jumped on the loom or was doing the spinning or whatever um, in these families. So I think sometimes the numbers aren't, especially back then always was accurate, because you might have a family of eight, um, and all of them would at some point be weaving. Um, same as all of them at some point would be milking the cow and running after the sheep and, and all these things. Very much a family affair. Um, Anyway, that's a wee aside. What were we asking? The tweet. Well, the tweet back in the day would have been a lot heavier than what it is now. Proper, proper, Harris tweed. Um, Very durable, very waterproof, very heavy, um, thick cloth. And that's the tweed that was used right up until, I don't know, the 90s, I think it was, when they started really going down a kind of slightly thinner root. And then that was your your standard wheat or your heavy wheat tweed. And then what's now medium wheat, which then was light wheat, Um, came in just for a slightly lighter fabric. Uh, Not quite as waterproof because it wasn't as dense, but still, showerproof. Absolutely. Uh, I've even done tests myself just to check. And it'll hold a good weight of water before it lets any through. Um, uh, But now the the standard weight or heavy weight has kind of fallen by the wayside, Um, which personally I think is a great shame. Um, I think there's still a place for the old heavyweight tweed. Um, and medium weight, as standard now, is the heaviest weight you'll get. And then there's a, a super fine version, which is good for very lightweight clothing. Um, no use for upholstery or anything like that, um, but great for, for something light or children's clothing, things like that. It's not going to buckle their knees when they stick on a coat made out of super fine, <laughs> as opposed to the heavyweight, it's more tired dragging along the ground. Um, there is, I actually did some heavyweight tweeds um one of the mills as a special order had produced the heavyweight yarn and then had some excess so i bought some and that stuff is bomb proof it's brilliant um and that's the tweed i remember you know like things my mother had um like from when she was young and it is that very heavy heavy tweed heavyweight tweed um i still have some of that yarn and I do produce some of that tweed, it's very much when it's gone it's gone unfortunately um, but I also do some weaving for I don't know what you call them, independent customers, so there's somebody in Lewis who shears his own sheep and then sends the, the fleeces down to Lewis to be processed into yarn and he gets a heavyweight yarn um, made by them and then I weave it for him um. Has a tweed and then he has a tweed sell. So there is still kind of heavyweight tweed being produced, but very much small scale and and you know to, to very specific orders. And in fact, used to I, I weave tweeds for them as well. And they have a, a variety of, of weights, and some of them aren't the standard yes. Harris tweed weights, although they're still Harris tweed um, because everything you know all the it gets very technical, but all the thread density counts and everything like that matches in. So it's quite interesting. You know, you'll do an in-between weight between the medium and the superfine and everything. and So it's, it's quite interesting getting a chance to do these things. But, uh, yeah, it has definitely become lighter in colour. Um, there's a lot more bright colours being used nowadays and lighter in weight. But there's also, I believe, and I I, I could be wrong, but the, the mills, for example, will also produce a, a medium wheat tweed that's not quite as dense as the dense medium wheat. If <laughs> so that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, and then independents like we we produce quite a, a quite a dense medium wheat tweed. So there's a few variations out there.
0: But weaving Harris Tweed from wool that is actually originated on the islands. Now that must be quite a rare a rare tweed.
2: Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we don't have enough sheep to. Keep the whole Harris Tweed industry going, and uh, they cleared us out once for that, and they shouldn't be doing it again. So, they have to buy in fleece. Oh, I say We I don't have to buy in any fleece. Um, but the mills are buying in fleece. Um, I mean, Lauren I know all about that stuff far more than I do. But it is. It's it's really nice that, that that traceability. It's almost like going back to the old ways where you were shearing your own sheep, and you were spinning your own fleeces, and you were weaving for your own tweed. It's it's kind of going back to that where the guy that, that's selling that tweed just now can name every single person involved in the production of that tweed from sheep to fabric. Um, and that's how it used to be. So, uh, yeah, I, I quite like that, actually, and being involved in something like that that's so... It's, it's a nod to the past, even though there's obviously more modern things been done. It's not being hand-spun anymore or anything like that, but, you know, it's it's quite nice to think that that's how it was done back in like my grandmother's day and things when she was weaving.
1: So in addition to 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 weight and colour um, and, and setting the the, the colour in, in urine, um, you know, the, the, we are now able to offer finishing um finishes, so waterproofing, fireproofing, uh, upholstery level uh, weight cloth, um brushed finishing, cropped finishing, teflon finishing. You know, our industry doesn't actually do the fit the finish, but you can now get hars to in these. In these finishes, and and that's what's that's part of the story of how we've had to evolve. You know, if we want Harris Tweed to remain relevant um, for use in in technical textiles and by street brands, we need to be able to say you can after after it's uh, being authenticated as genuine Harris Tweed, it can be sent to a finisher for, for a, a a waxed finish so that it can be used by in you know, the in the fishing sector and um you know waterproofing for for footwear and, and things like that so we, we you know it's just really basic innovation but but they weren't happening in our industry um and, and and now are um and and just to confirm yes you're right that that that's a really rare thing that scenario of of the island crofter who who shears a sheep uh, gets it turned into to yarn and and gets it woven. That that that's that's pretty unique nowadays. And um, the the industry buys its wool. Uh, via the British Wool Marketing Board, the island clip, uh, crofters and and farmers um, send their wool to the British Wool Marketing Board, Uh, island clip will be added to the national clip and some of it will come back to us, but generally our island uses, our island crofters breed blackface sheep, our industry tends to use cheviate wool. Um, it is a, a slightly longer fibre, s- slightly more suitable for 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 weaving the kind of cloth we make. So, uh, uh, but but the the Act defines that Harris must be one hundred percent pure new wool first clip. Um, it doesn't it doesn't state it must be island wool or Scottish wool. It's just one hundred percent pure new wool.
0: I often notice when looking at tweed that there are little bits of straw or twigs or something in it is that something that's added to make it more authentic or is it just <laughs> oh that's the sheep
2: for you wandering all over the <laughs> i mean i can see some sheep some sheep just now on the hill so as they're going through the heather little bits will just come off and stick to their fleece as they're on the shore bits of seaweed and plastic and it's amazing actually what you find mixed in with it but it's all natural in itself than that it's, it's in the fleece and as much as the fleece is scoured and processed and all the rest of it those wee bits will cling on and remain in it and as you're weaving some of it you'll notice and pick out and other bits are still there even when you get it back as finished cloth.
1: Some customers don't want their cloth to be picked, um, have have these bits of natural fibres picked out, they want, they want to see the bits of hay and um, they ask the mill to specifically bypass the, the picking table, which is uh, the, the the part of the finishing process where routinely they would tweeze that off and and brush off these bits of of, of natural uh, fibers that have been been caught up in in the wool. That are customers are many, I believe, that just ask, don't don't touch it, leave them.
0: <laughs> so, so I was actually <laughs> not incorrect about uh, suggesting that it might be safe, right? I, I always think it's wonderful when I see it. So uh, I'm clearly one of the customers there having the tweed made for.
2: Somebody out there has a bit of tweed that they got from me with um, the legs of an insect woven into it. <laughs> I was weaving one night and this little wee, almost like a, like a crane fly type thing came down. And I couldn't stop in time before it was kind of woven. And then he was stuck in it. So I tried to get him back out. And unfortunately, two of his legs came off. He seemed quite happy. He flew away again. Um and I tried to come out and I just I, I then took a photo and I thought it's a great thing to put on social media. I took a photo of it, haha, but I forgot to take them back out. <laughs> so then they went through everything and then they'd still be there when I sold it. And I forgot, forgot to ever check again. So somewhere somebody has a bit of tweed with two two legs. <laughs> <six> extra limit.
0: <laughs> now I, I see we're running out of time dramatically here so in closing where is Harris Tweed today and where is it going any final thoughts or messages
1: um, Well certainly from, from my point of view um, the, the focus from the Harris Tweed authorities point of view remains um, the protection of Harris Tweed um, we sadly live in a world um, where things can be copied and um, brands can be damaged. And um, we strongly punch above our weight in terms of our size and scale and budget and what we do to look after Tweed, um Largely overseas, um, we hold trademarks all over the world, but our fighting fund in, in China has to be... Um, Significant, and uh, but we do that. We'll fight to we'll fight any fight if it means that we keep um, the Halstead name and brand authentic and protected. But uh, I've been in this job about uh, eleven years now, and that has become eighty percent of my time and resource, and eighty percent of the authority's budget is now uh, on 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 brand protection and online monitoring. Uh, counterfeits, trademark infringements, all that sort of stuff, unfortunately. Um, but just on the more positive side of things, I think we have a true story of sustainability in the widest possible sense. I think there has been a real shift from customers and what they're looking for when they're buying cloth and garments. And our story appeals. It's true, it's integrous, it's it's what we are. We can't pretend to be anything different and and uh, there is a place in the marketplace just now for I'm not saying Tweed is eco, but I'm saying it's a really important sustainable fabric. And and I think you know we have a, a, a place to that finite finite level we talked about earlier to, to 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 fill that market.
2: Becca? From our point of view, one thing we don't have to worry about is the Harris tweed brand, because we have the Harris Tweed Authority doing it for us, which is fantastic. <clears throat> it allows. I mean, for me personally, I get to focus on the next generation. I did a talk in a local school, um, the school I went to actually as a child a few years ago, and I've just been asked to do some more. Um, and I think that's really important. I think it's like Lauren was saying earlier. Oh, there's, there's, you know, people in the islands just now see this as an industry they can get into, and I think the younger you can get them and realise, yeah, it's still here. We can still do it. Um, is really important. Uh, same as my own kind of nephews and my niece and that. Get them. I mean, at the moment they're they're two. They sit on my knee while I'm weaving, but that's enough. They're quite interested and they're always asking, "Oh, are you in the shed? And what are you doing? Are you weaving today?" So I think I get a focus on that. For obviously, I produce tweed. I sell tweed. That isn't going to change. Um, but yeah, I want to try and make sure that there is going to be the the, the new generation coming into it. Um. And just keep keep getting the message out there about how amazing wool in itself is. Um, I, last year, I think it was. No, 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 no. 2019 it was. I bought myself a wool pillow. Um, I used to get quite a sweaty head when I was sleeping. And somebody just said, a wool pillow will sort you out. Aye, aye, whatever. Anyway, did some research, bought one. Oh, my goodness. I now have a wool duvet. I am looking at wool mattress. <laughs> you know, and I work with wool. So you'd think if anybody was gonna know about it and earn all the amazing properties, then I would, especially because I do love a little experiment. I have tried burning tweed. It doesn't burn. It does create an awful smell. So if you are gonna try it, do it outside. Um I have done tests where I have suspended tweed and put water on it to see how much water it'll take before it'll soak through. Surprisingly amount, surprising amount. I have tried you know, bleaching tweed, dyeing tweed, doing all these kind of things. Just just to show off how how good it is and yet never really taking that and transferring that to how important wool is and how special it is. So I think getting the message out there, like Lauren was saying, about how incredible this fabric actually is. Um and and yeah, getting the next generation excited about it. I think it's the kind of thing that it's Oh, it just gets into you, doesn't it, Lorna? And you can't help. And then every opportunity, you know, you're either standing there banging on about Harris Tweed or showing off or, or some poor person comes to my shed and asks one question and three hours later, I'm still ranting on about some element of the Harris Tweed industry or showing them this or showing them that or, or you know, showing off colours. And, and it, it just, I'm so excited by it that I want other people to share that excitement and that love and that passion and to understand that this is special um it's it's not run of the mill and yeah just keep trying to get that message out there
0: brilliant okay um i'd like to extend a huge thanks to you lorna and becca this was really great and uh i hope to visit the hebrides again sometime soon
2: well pop into the shed
0: Well, I thought I'd get my own shed and uh, set myself up as a weaver. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a great life.
1: Thanks, Dick, for your interest.
0: Thanks a lot, both of you, and bye-bye. bye -bye. Bye -bye. Cheers. And that concludes this week's episode of Gomology. A big thanks to Lorna McCauley and Rebecca Hutton. I'll leave their contact details in the episode notes so you can get in touch with them if you wish to. I am Nick Johannesson, creator and host of Gomology. If you'd like to get in touch with me, send an email to garmology at welldressedad.com. If you enjoyed this, you might also like my blog at welldressedad.com or even just follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. I'd really appreciate it if you left the podcast a rating or even a review on apple podcasts it's a bit harder on other platforms and um even shared it with your mum or your friends it's really hard for a smaller podcast to make it out there so until next week thanks a lot and uh, bye bye